even when the world is changing quickly, that you can move forward. If you have the right audacious goal and you're willing to be an experimentalist and imperfectionist, you can take those steps which help you gather information, help you build your understanding of the game being played, help you build your capabilities, sometimes give you key assets that can help you be successful. Typically, that means involving parallel initiatives, not just having one strategic thread, but having multiple strategic threads and doubling down on the things that are working. And so this is an invitation you know, to be courageous because only by being an imperfectionist can we actually work on all these both great opportunities, but the challenges that we face. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. We live in imperfect times, times in which we've sacrificed so much of our natural world for modern convenience, and where we're starting to really see the negative impacts of that approach. We live in uncertain political times in which right is pitted against left and vice versa. In times like these, we need imperfect solutions too. So how do we, leaders, or those that are aspiring to be leaders, how do we personally really band together and create lasting positive change? How do we improve our impact, however imperfectly? Joining me for this exploration today is Charles Kahn. Charles Kahn is a cross-sectional leader, conservationist, and entrepreneur. He is co-founder of Monograph Capital, a life scientist venture firm in London and San Francisco, and was previously CEO of the Rhodes Trust in Oxford. He is board chair of Patagonia and sits on the Nature Conservancy European Council. He was founding CEO of Ticketmaster City Search and was a partner at McKinsey and Company. In short, he's got a plethora of experience from which to divine. He is the author of two books, Bulletproof Problem Solving and The Imperfectionist, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times. This is just published in April and May 2023, depending on where in the world you are, by Wiley Press. Charles Kahn, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Karina. It's really great to be here. So let's start today's conversation with your inspiration. What really brought you to this moment where you have become a cross-sectional leader and also a conservationist at the same time? Yeah. As you mentioned in the introduction, my co-author and I have written a previous book called Bulletproof Problem Solving, where we focused on the tools for solving really complicated problems, how to take them apart, prioritize them, and crack them. What we found um, as we were heading into the pandemic was there's just such a level of uncertainty in the world today that we thought it was really important to address because we were seeing in both the nonprofit organizations that we work with, conservation organizations mostly, and the businesses that we work with, a kind of paralysis. When you think about this incredible overlay of artificial intelligence, automation, robotics, programmable biology, cut across with war and pandemic, many people, including people at the very tops of conservation organizations and businesses, seem frozen. The tools that we were taught in business school for how to develop strategies really don't work very well when you're in this high change environment. Many folks were saying, I'm just going to pause here and wait till we return to equilibrium. 
And we're not coming back to equilibrium. This level of change is with us. Or folks were doing impetuous and foolish things, making acquisitions or starting big programs that they couldn't really afford. We are hoping to chart a middle path here where you use the best information you can gather and actually get started. That's why we call it imperfectionism, not waiting for all the ducks to be in a row or some moment of perfect strategic clarity. Well, it sounds like you're also alluding to a problem that we face in an era when it seems like data is available for everything. We can run into what I would term just as analysis paralysis, where it's just there's so much information available that it's hard to see the forest through the trees. So the overall approach that you're putting into this book, do you think it helps to address that specifically? Yeah, very much so. The idea here is to be guided by a very strong, audacious mission, so where you want to go, and to use the set of tools that we discuss in the book to create a very clear set of priorities for how to move your organization forward. I have to say, it's reminding me of a few works that I've read in the long distant past now from good to great, really just helping to focus behind a mission and being clear on what that mission is. I also am reminded of some conversations I had with my former leader when I was building the business of Nordic Naturals, UR Opheim. And he would often say, yes, we can be aware of what our competitors are doing. And it's important to feed that information to our team. But if we're constantly reacting, we're not charting a course. So we need to go ahead and really define what it is that we're doing and then just commit and drive forward with that. And I think when you have your mission alignment really clear and when the path is laid well, that it can inform your decisions in such a way that you're not constantly feeling like you're in scramble mode or like the data is overwhelming because then you've defined what you really need to be looking at. And some of this other stuff may be interesting, but not really drive your decision-making at the same time. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And so business like Patagonia It's been incredibly important now over 50 years to have the strategic clarity of someone like Yvonne Chouinard, who has set a very clear horizon for us to aim for. That's the what. Every day, as people in the business need to decide, how do you make that happen? And what this book is about is how do you develop that sense for what to do next, how to get started? Yeah. Let's talk about this a bit more, because you do define in the book six mutually reinforcing mindsets from embracing ambiguity, which I think is probably one of the hardest things to do, all the way through to really practicing storytelling at every level. Tell me more about this and and how did you get to these six? Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of time thinking about it, that we looked for examples and there are more than 50 examples in the book of both companies and nonprofits researched over the course of about a decade. We looked for examples where people had learned to take their organizations forward despite the fact that they're in the eye of the storm. And that's really what guided us. So what are the mindsets that those folks used in order to steer forward almost universally? That's how we came up with the six. And why don't I take a couple of them and talk about what we mean? And then I'll stop for a second and we can regroup and talk about the other. Can I stop the ballot box? Yeah, exactly. Where would you like me to start? (laughs) I want to stop the ballot box specifically because I think social media is often on people's minds. And you detail in an early chart in the book, just on page six, the swift rise of TikTok, 
versus Snapchat or Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. And I think everyone is aware of who these companies are. So why don't you start with technology and then we can dive into not-for-profit? Yeah, we live in this world where compared to our parents' generation, things are accelerating at a pace that just really haven't been seen before. In fact, you could argue that whole post-war period where we had economic expansion and Ozzy and Harriet lives in our homes, that's the anomaly. What we have now is a pace of technology change, which means that for both businesses and nonprofits, but let's take businesses for a second, we don't even know what industry boundaries are. So 40 years ago, if you were in the steel business, you knew what that meant, or you were in a retail business, you knew what that meant. Today, when you're in a business, the disruptor or attacker of your business is just as likely to come from outside your traditional competitor set than inside. You may not even know who they are. And the example you mentioned is a wonderful one. So we're all familiar with social media. We're all familiar that social media has been moving more towards short form video content. You have players like YouTube and you have players like Facebook and Instagram, but the dominant player today, which is now TikTok, wasn't even known five years ago or six years ago. And it was mostly dismissed in the beginning by executives like myself, like, oh, that's just for the youngs. And that's right. <laughs> Were we wrong? Right. And, you know, it literally came from nowhere. This example of a business which overseas origins used artificial intelligence rather than hand curation to serve up which of the videos you were going to see and was enormously compelling and infectious for the people who used it. It's a great example of a business that came in and disrupted incredibly powerful and sophisticated players, right? I think that's the kind of world we're living in. And so given that that's the world we're living in, how do you deal with that? Look at the kind of super competitors that exist today. So again, if we're stick sticking with business for a second, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, whatever business you're in, they think that they're business, right? So you look, Amazon started off as a business which was selling books. Well, now it's a business that does consumer financial services. It does producer financial services. It does cloud computing. It's the biggest player in the world in cloud computing. And now it's doing healthcare. That's the kind of world we live in, whether you're, again, in a not-for-profit or for-profit business. How do you orient yourself to be successful given that swirling competitive environment and fast technology change? Well, how? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the question. That's six mutually reinforcing mindsets, right? Right. So our view is, let's talk about the mindsets, that the starting point is you actually need to be curious. And that sounds enormously simple and obvious, but it's surprising how people in every type of organization, the giant banks or giant consulting firms or the biggest nonprofits, you know, the nature conservancies of the world or the Conservation International, it's very easy to think that you know everything about your business and to stop asking that kind of childlike question. And, you know, our favorite example here is many people are familiar with the Polaroid instant camera. Most people don't know where that came from. Edwin Land, who was this prolific inventor, was walking around Santa Fe, New Mexico with his daughter on a holiday. And he took a picture with his standard film camera at the time of something. And his daughter next to him, Jennifer Land, said, Daddy, can I see the picture? And he started to explain, well, no, honey. I mean, that just took an image on an emulsion that's a chemical film, and that needs to go to a lab where the lab will do it. And he stopped himself and he thought, why can't we just see the picture? This child had asked this question based in curiosity, 
that sparked his imagination. And believe it or not, by the end of the day, I'm not sure he was that interesting a lunch companion. He had figured out how to do the chemistry of photography. By that evening, he'd actually been meeting with his patent attorney about how to turn that into a new product. And that level of curiosity where you're asking the question why like a child, I just think is brilliant. Isn't that also how we have defined what's at the root of genius and why four-year-olds will be off the charts with regard to an IQ test? And then by the time they're six, a lot of that is gone. It's awful the way our education system and frankly, our parenting approaches squash creativity and curiosity, right? By the time you're 20, you've lost a lot of that childlike approach to things with an openness of mind. It's probably no accident. The great scientific discoveries of all ages have almost always been made by people in their teens and 20s. Einstein did the equivalent of six Nobel Prizes worth of work before he was 30. And I think it's because there's an openness that we sometimes lose as adults. We can remember to do that again. And I guess that's what we're encouraging people to do. Well, I was even interviewed on another podcast on the entire subject of curiosity because it's something I spend a lot of time talking about. And I think it's one of the only ways that we can really effectively talk across the aisle to somebody who disagrees with us. Because if we come from a rigid standpoint, then what happens when you meet another rigid standpoint? You guys just butt heads. That's all there is. But if you ask a question that is genuinely curious, as opposed to one of those planting questions, that's almost like you're just creating another fallacy in your conversation then you can actually have a meaningful conversation with someone who might disagree with you and get to some sort of mutual ground where at least, even if you still disagree, you understand one another's point of view a little better. And I think that's at the root of attacking any real challenge that we might confront because it seems, at least to me, that we're getting less skilled at that by not practicing it as much. And also because when we talk about the rise of social media, it's you're not facing someone person to person. It's a lot easier to make a nasty comment and <laughs> the social post than it is to confront somebody directly and to say, I disagree with you and here's why, as opposed to saying, well, why do you even think that in the first place? What brought you there? And help me understand your point of view a little bit better. Yeah, that's so right. And I just love the word you used, which is practice, that if there are values or virtues that we want to see in our lives, the way to start that is to put them into practice. And you just did it a second ago. So instead of making a statement, you put a question mark on the end of it. You ask it as a question. You offer it up to the people you're in dialogue with so that you can co-discover, co-explore something, co-discover something because you're indicating openness with asking those questions, why, what, how, when, rather than making declarations. And when we're making strategic decisions, it's particularly important that we have this fundamental openness to ask questions. Now, your next step is really talking about a dragonfly eye view of the world to see through multiple lenses. And I thought it was very interesting that you chose a dragonfly because a dragonfly is also a symbol associated with reaching your highest self, where a butterfly is known for transformation. A dragonfly is reaching that highest self perspective. So was that intentional? Yeah, you know, it's obviously a fascinating creature and one we don't even understand that well. But what we do know is they have these giant compound eyes that have more than 3,000 lenses and three different lens types. 
we know that they perceive color in ways that we can only begin to imagine. So there are some scientific tests on how they perceive color. But let's use that as an analogy because we don't know exactly how they see. They see, obviously, their brains see in a way that's very different from ours. We love this idea that they're seeing things through these multiple lenses rather than the fixed lens. And when you're in your nonprofit or in your company, it's very typical that you see it through only that lens, right? And if you can stop when you're developing strategic direction and ask, I wonder what it looks like from the perspective of our suppliers, our customers, or a potential customer in a different space, or a potential entrant or competitor, or if we were to continue with a nonprofit angle, let's say we were looking at fisheries off California. When you're a conservationist, you might only see it through the lens of conservation. What would it do for your solution set if you also looked at it through the eyes of or lens of a commercial fisherman or a resource manager for one of the big, for a California or a national fisheries agency? When you look at it through those different perspectives, the solution sets become much broader, right? And so let's continue with the fisheries example. The Nature Conservancy back in the 90s and early 2000s realized that there was a huge problem with the ground fish fishery off the coast of California. We were catching both species that were in abundance and species that were incredibly endangered using bottom trawling technology that also damaged their habitats, right? So you could ask, shouldn't we just ban that? But of course, many people along that coast also depended on that for their livelihoods and many consumers depended on that as food. And what this amazing team at the Nature Conservancy did is it looked at it through all those lenses. And so rather than just doing bans, it worked with science and with resource management agencies and with fishers to figure out what areas should be protected areas where there was no fishing. They came up with new technologies for fishing that didn't damage the habitat. And most importantly, they looked at the actual economics of the fishers and realized that instead of using what's called derby fishing, where everyone rushes out to catch fish during short opening periods, they used a catch shares approach. You were entitled to catch a certain number of fish, but you could do that anytime. And only if you didn't have bycatch of these endangered species. Well, by creating that kind of a system and using licensing banks for these fish catches, all of a sudden it changed the whole dynamic of a fishery from an aggressive competitive one where there was lots of damage to lots of risk of uh, danger and risk of loss of habitat diversity and species diversity works really well and achieves higher prices for the fish that are caught. That is looking at things through multiple perspectives. Brilliant. Is this the case study you referred to as the fish face case study? No, that's a different one, which I'll also point <laughs> Okay, because I just want to dig more into this one first, but yeah. I come from the world of fish oil. So you might not have known that before we got started here today. So I spent a decade working in fish oil manufacture with Nordic Naturals. I have since made a full pivot to working only with algae because, well, frankly, I think that we're on a global scale, taking more than we really should. And even though there are really good protections in certain places, it's a challenge for local fishermen to feel like they get a fair share in that overall tonnage. You have massive corporations coming in, getting the big deals and the big buys, and that squeezes out the little guy, which I think poses a unique ethical issue, which thankfully it seems like the Nature Conservancy worked to help attack, but hasn't solved it on a global scale. Like, let's be real. We've got a lot of challenges in the world of fishing. I perhaps know a little bit more about this than most. I also did have the wonderful opportunity to interview 
the author Steve Hawley of Cracked about dams in the Pacific Northwest and what they've done to the fishing world. But I really want to know, as we talk about this just a little bit more, what that negotiation table was like with those fishermen and how an active role could perhaps have been taken where they were involved at the table. Curious. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it really does involve a very different kind of shift to your earlier point. Probably 90% of the existing fisheries in the world are unsustainable. And that's partly because everything is done on an adversarial basis. So conservationists against natural resource managers and government against commercial fishers. And often there are other people too, like First Nations tribes who believe that they have some historic stake in these creatures and in the fishery as well as recreational fishers who think that they have some stake, right? And so you have all these different parties. And I've you know, spent 25 years working on salmon conservation in the Northeast and the Northwest. And in that kind of a confrontational adversarial approach, you tend to get low quality outcomes that don't meet anybody's needs or expectations, partly because you haven't actually reconceived the nature of this discussion at all. And what happened with this group, and Steve Foley was involved, by the way, along with people like Chuck Cook from the Nature Conservancy, is they put down their swords for a second and said, we're in trouble here. We're about to lose our livelihoods. We're about to lose the species. We're about to lose the business. We're about to lose the whole nine yards in this incredibly important set of fisheries. Because they were so close to a situation where the entire fishery would have been shut down, people were willing to put their swords down and step away from their long-held positions. That that allowed them to consider different gear types, protected areas so that young fish would have a place to grow without any chance of being caught, and to look at a catch-shares approach rather than a catch-all-I-can during a short opening approach. Those elements together allowed everyone to sort of take a step further, which is they trusted that the other parties were actually in it for them them, not just themselves. And I think that's what led to a really remarkable chance for a solution. By the way, this isn't the only place that this has occurred. The Nobel Prize winning economist Eleanor Ostrom, who's sadly now gone, wrote about this natural resource problems and communities just so beautifully over the course of 30 or 40 years in her career. When you have the right conditions, including not very little threat from entrance, you can create community solutions where you get better conservation outcomes and better outcomes for fishers. I love that. Now, I wanted to take a moment before we shift to the next question to revisit a quote that you put in your onboarding document for this podcast for from Yvonne Chouinard, and that is simply, the world changes too fast for complicated corporate strategies to make sense. The competition beats you to market by the time you have worked out. The best way is to take small steps and learn by doing. And that was Yvonne Chouinard. What do you think we can learn from this? How do we put it in practice? What you just read is really at the very heart of what imperfectionism is about, which is rather than trying to work in the way we used to develop strategies, which is assuming a structure and looking at the conduct of the players and trying to divine what they were likely to do depending on what we did. This approach that you just heard in Yvonne's quote is an experimentalist approach, which is as long as the steps that I'm making are relatively low cost and are reversible, right? I should be willing to experiment. Step forward, see how it feels and see the results that I get. 
And if I like it, take another step forward. If I don't take a step back, this is the philosophy that's behind Patagonia. And of course, as an outdoor gear company, it's at the very heart of what we do. We make something up in our minds. We build a prototype. We go out into the field and see if it works. If it works, we try and perfect it. If it doesn't work, we go back to the drawing board. What Yvonne said is if you try and solve all that in advance on paper, someone's already beat you to it. You probably get it wrong anyway. This is at the very heart of the overarching philosophy behind the book. We can talk about the other mindsets, but curiosity, seeing things through multiple perspectives, gathering new data, right? Which is the next one we haven't spoken about yet. Tapping into sources of intelligence outside of your own organization and getting other people to follow what you believe through good storytelling taken together, that's an imperfectionist approach to developing strategy, which is an approach that gives you the courage just to get started rather than to wait for some moment of perfection that's never going to get there. This leads me to think about my approach to leadership, which has always been to really take it like you're making a cake. So you've got all the ingredients, you throw them into a bowl, you mix them up, you've got essentially everything that you know you need to make it work, more or less. But as it stands, you know you have to put it in the oven and you have to let it perhaps rise in the oven at a right temperature. Before you get it to that stage where it's going through the final step, that's when you do all this testing, right? That's how I've personally approached it. I've also talked about it like jello, like you make the jello, but it's got to take some time to set. And before it's completely set, you've got to do some stress tests, so to speak. Was I right? Was I wrong? Share it with your customers, get their feedback, start to really think about the whole problem that you're working to address in this half-baked state as opposed to, I've solved it, here it is, it's a baked cake, it's frosted, and it's ready to be eaten. That's exactly right. And when you think about it, as organizations get bigger, they often move away from that approach that you just described, and they demand sort of perfection, ex-ante perfection, and they punish people who are working at the front lines when something goes wrong. Well, that's entirely the wrong impulse. And as I mentioned a minute ago, as long as people are making experiments at the front line that are relatively modest investment and which can be reversed. So if you don't like it, take a step back. We should be encouraging experimentation at the front line because people up at the very top of an organization aren't close enough to the real problems and opportunities that exist down at the coalface, so to speak, where people are encountering, encountering potential customers or in the case of nonprofits, the kind of actors that I described a minute ago, resource harvesters, resource regulators, et cetera. Let's dig into this next step. You have developed an interesting term I hadn't seen before, which was pursuing a current behavior. Yeah, occurrent behavior is this idea of what's actually happening rather than what you predicted. And we love it because when you're trained as management consultant, which both co-author and I were trained as, you're trained to go out and immediately get the existing data sets. And then you do analysis on those data sets and you predict what's going to happen. And that all sounds great, but all those existing data sets were collected in the past. And so the likelihood that they're going to lead to the ultimate insights in a world that's changing really quickly is low. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. Seems obvious, but that's what everybody does. And instead, what we encourage you to do is do your own experiment. In the online world, it's relatively easy to do. You can design one interface and another interface and test them on half of your audiences. Or you can try one offer. You know, here's fish oil capsules 
three jars with one free and here's one you come up with a different structure in the real world outside online it can sometimes be hard to conduct those experiments but we encourage people to do them so at patagonia we do tons of product testing and even in giant businesses which have hugely expensive components like let's take spacex they take an experimentalist approach so their most recent launch which was probably an environmental disaster which we'll leave aside for a moment but they spent hundreds of millions of dollars and had an unplanned disassembly. I think that was their term. But even in advance of that, they knew what they were going to learn. And therefore, it was worth going ahead with a launch because there were many things that they were experimenting with in the design of that particular rocket. Whether you like Elon Musk and you like the idea of SpaceX or not, it's impressive to see that compared to NASA, they are doing three or four times more launches per year, and they've lowered the cost of sending a kilogram into space by 95%. Well, and I have my own issues with Elon Musk, but I also interviewed EOS Data Analytica's CMO about their work and learned that their work got one of the satellite constellations yep. <laughs> into the air above. The... <laughs> so it's like, okay, so six in one hand, half dozen in the other, we're actually putting technological solutions to climate change into the stratosphere with the help of SpaceX. So I can be critical of Elon Musk all day long, and I'm happy to do so. But <laughs> there are certain things about what they're doing that you can't deny are working pretty well. Yeah. So I don't disagree here. I also just wanted to, for a moment, get your viewpoint on the type of experimentation that even like in the direct-to-consumer marketing space, people can undertake through a tool like Amazon Turk as a for example. Yeah, those are great. And there's, there's a lot more platforms today for doing experimentation than has ever existed before, right? What are a few of your favorites? I only know about Amazon Turk for this sort of thing outside of doing market research that's a little bit more traditional from a marketing perspective. Yeah, well, I'll come to it in a minute when we talk about collective intelligence, but I like crowdsourcing programs too, like platforms like Kaggle. I think you can put it out there and offer and get different groups testing different types of solutions for which you pay a relatively modest amount. Of course, A-B testing or A-B-C testing is something that you can do on your own without having a platform if you have an online space for doing that. And there are also natural experiments. So sometimes it's unethical, for example, with in the medical world to do a test where one group gets something and the other group doesn't. You can look for natural tests. So for example, in the pandemic, you had two very similar countries, Sweden and Norway, they're sister countries, they speak almost the same language. Well, in the pandemic, one of them pursued one set of policies about how to deal with an unknown pathogen, and the other pursued a very different one, and they got different outcomes. That's a good example of a natural experiment. We could look back ex post and say, Norway did these things that seemed to work well, Sweden did these things that seemed to work less well, and vice versa. Both of them did some things that worked. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So let's dig a little bit deeper into this collective intelligence piece, which acknowledging you're not the smartest person in the room. Yeah, it's not easy for some of us to do, but <laughs> I love this quote, which came from Bill Joy, who is the founder of Sun Microsystems and who's one of the parents of Unix. He used open source development of software to sort of generate this idea. I mean, he said, smartest people probably aren't company. They're probably working for someone else's company. How do you get them laboring in your garden even if you, even if they're not your employees? Well, an obvious answer is open source. Unix was developed by groups of people starting at Berkeley and 
actually starting at AT&T and then developed further at Berkeley, which became something that wasn't owned by anybody, which was developed by university and company computer scientists. And which, by the way, at the heart of the operating systems of both Apple and Microsoft today. So that was developed as a collaborative project. And that's a way of getting people working to solve really complex problems who don't necessarily work for your nonprofit or for your company. I mentioned Kaggle a second ago. I just love this idea. So the Nature Conservancy, again, was trying to solve another fisheries problem, which was the interception of endangered tuna fish on the high seas. So you got fishing boats out there in the middle of the ocean, bobbing around, trying to catch both tuna that are not endangered in their nets or lines catching tuna that are endangered. How could you solve this really complex conservation problem? Well, in, in the Nature Conservancy, there's full of clever people, but it's not their natural experience base to have a bunch of people who are good at computer vision and machine learning. So they put this problem to a Kaggle competition with a $150,000 prize, and they got more than 3,000 entries of people who developed machine learning algorithms based on onboard cameras on these fishing fleets that would identify according to the shape of a fin or the shape of a gill plate, which fish you could keep and which fish should be returned carefully to the ocean. I mean, that's brilliant. This is a capability they didn't have internally that led to a major conservation innovation, which is now being trialed aboard ships off the Indonesian fleet and which we hope will soon sweep its way through offshore fisheries in general, right? This is like facial recognition software for fish. Fish face. <laughs> it's brilliant, right? And so this is the fish face case study, but <laughs> this is fish face. I assumed it was some marketing thing where people were taking like pictures of themselves with a fish face or something like that going. This is just one of these cases where a really difficult strategic problem, an incredibly uncertain and fast-changing environment is solved not by the people who happen to be working for the Nature Conservancy, but with this $150,000 prize that elicited all these amazing technological solutions. It's just a wonderful example. No, I love it. I think that's amazing. Now, as far as the last step here, practicing the show and tell. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned practice a bit throughout this. Becoming good storytellers is something that's hard for some people. So how can they flex this muscle and get stronger in this way? Yeah. And it's just super important. I mean, we live in this world of incredible richness, diversity, and change. And yet most of the time we present things in this most boring possible format of PowerPoint. And I suppose if PowerPoint didn't exist, you'd invent it. But surely we can do better than that. Right. And in a world where the very concept of truth has been questioned, and I think you started uh, right at the beginning of the show talking about that, people don't trust each other. And therefore, just showing people data tables and seeing and saying, I've got the answer usually isn't enough to convince people to want to follow your strategic ideas. And so this final step of being an imperfectionist is to develop those capabilities. We encourage people to remember that to follow someone's ideas or to support someone's ideas are not just made between your ears. They're also made in your heart. And when we tell stories, we need to remember where people are coming from, from their values perspective, not just from their analytic perspectives. And so to construct stories that speak both to what you found, that's the sort of data and truth, in a way that speaks to people's needs and values. That definitely doesn't mean just showing ugly PowerPoints. It may mean getting people involved physically, using props, 
And again, you know, there's another favorite example from conservation. So this one's from Australia. There was a conservation organization that was trying to encourage a big philanthropic organization to donate money to create oyster reefs and other shellfish reefs and estuaries because all this runoff that comes from agriculture is full of all these nutrients that create huge amounts of problems in the ocean. Well, you can filter all that stuff by shellfish. Now, we could have shown a, a table that says shellfish filter nutrients and other toxins, right? But instead, this particular group took 17 beautiful 10-liter buckets and it stacked them in a pyramid on the, at the back of the room. And so the philanthropic organization came in and the first thing they did is they noticed this pile of buckets. Their attention was immediately electric. And that was this wonderful segue to the leader of the conservation organization saying, every single oyster filters 170 liters a day of these excess nutrients and toxins, 17 buckets worth. Every oyster, 17 buckets worth. And that got them engaged. And by the time you knew it, the philanthropic organization had agreed to support this reef creation project. That's great storytelling, right? That also poses a really unique solution because while they might be able to do something at a water treatment plant, like right. build algae into their filtration system, you don't get the same thing with farm runoff from land and rivers. So how do you handle that excess nutrient within the oceans once it reaches there? Because that's exactly the thing that you need to tackle, or you end up with out of control algae blooms that end up suffocating fish and you have mass die-offs. So nature-based solutions are almost always the best place to start. I mean, sometimes we do require technical solutions, but this is a perfect example of just what you said. So you're getting these incredible algal blooms and die-offs in estuaries and in the lower reaches of rivers. Yeah. Right. And estuaries is where all the baby fish essentially grow to their space. I mean, they need that. So imagine you're a little salmon alvin growing into a smolt and you're traveling through the fresh water and you hit this estuary, right? You don't even have the, the capability initially to process salt water, let alone right. survive in that kind of environment. The estuary is that critical place for many creatures to make a transition. Yeah. And if you're poisoning it with various forms of runoff, which, by the way, includes pharmaceuticals that we urinate out and end up in those same places. Well, huge problem. I wanted to talk about a couple of other examples, given your experience with Patagonia as well. And one makes a lot of sense for Patagonia, right? They have championed open spaces in a way that I think is really admirable and involved their users to share their experiences through this, to really amplify that message and to even fund films that relate to this type of conservation to reach a broader audience through that type of an effort, which at the time it first started would have seemed like, well, that's a stretch. Isn't that strange that Patagonia is going to becoming a filmmaker now? So do you have any comments specific to that and how it's really positively impacted both the view of Patagonia and their growth? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think you've encapsulated that, that we've always been a storytelling organization. Right from the very beginning, Yvonne and Melinda, his wife, had this sense that if you're going to be an iconoclastic business, a business that doesn't do things the same as everybody else, you need to tell stories in a different way than just product marketing. From the very beginning, that was encapsulated in the catalogs, which you probably remember from the past and when you were a kid. All those, those catalogs weren't just 
jacket after jacket after jacket with a price next to them. They were stories of people doing things out in nature. Now, I think it was a very natural transition once good videography became possible to enrich and, and deepen those stories by telling those stories first in photography and, and then in film. And that's how the company ended up in the film business. And as you know, most of the films don't have anything to do with Patagonia products at all. They're about busting dams and conserving kelp forests and being in the places where species eradication is happening so quickly. And the other I wanted to speak to is the regenerative organic movement. Because I think this came as a surprise to many. It certainly came as a surprise to me when suddenly Patagonia seemed to be championing regenerative organic agriculture specifically, since the company wasn't really using a ton of organic cotton or even regenerative organic cotton. And since so much of that effort early on was about food. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you give full credit here to Yvonne rather than strategy thinkers, corporate thinkers. I mean, what Yvonne said one day is apparel accounts for something like 7% of the contribution to climate change. Food contributes more than 20%, right? If you really want to move the dial on climate change, you need to think about food systems, right? Two thirds of the surface of the earth is given over to growing food that we eat or growing food that we feed to us that we eat. This is nuts. We've got way too many people and we've taken up way too much of the surface of the earth with food systems. And of course, that's all been at the expense of natural systems. So Yvonne was the one who moved us into first regen ag for fibers. And that's right. We wanted to go beyond organic into regenerative farming for cotton because even organic isn't good enough. Um, as you know, you need to move towards systems that are fully circular. And I think it was only natural then that he began to think about what are the other food systems that we could begin to disrupt. Patagonia provisions exist for that reason, still at the early stages. I mean, that's amazing. And just for listeners of this podcast, I want to speak to a couple of episodes where you can go to learn more about regenerative organic certified and regenerative organic and agricultural practices. And that was an interview with John Rulak who also was the executive producer of films specifically about regenerative agriculture, and also my interface with the founders of Lotus Foods, Carol and Ken Levine. And that specifically is some deep dive into a company that has taken it upon themselves to really produce regeneratively organic certified rice and rice feeds so many people around the globe. And that's with Ken Lee and Carol Levine just had to say that because those two episodes, I think anybody listening to this who's interested, you could go there and dive a little deeper and get to understand these issues a little bit more. Uh, so I said that's super to hear. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charles Kahn, for joining me today. I'd love to ask you if you have any closing thoughts or if there was a question I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I had, you could ask and answer that. I'll leave you with one thought, which is, you know, so what we've wonderful dialogue today is about even when the world is changing quickly, that you can move forward. If you have the right audacious goal and you're willing to be an experimentalist, an imperfectionist, you can take those steps, which help you gather information, help you build your understanding of the game being played, help you build your capabilities, sometimes give you key assets that can help you be successful. Typically that means involving parallel initiatives, not just having one strategic thread, but having multiple strategic threads and doubling down on the things that are working. 
And so this is an invitation, you know, to be courageous because only by being an imperfectionist can we actually work on all these both great opportunities, but the challenges that we face. I just have to say, I've so appreciated the conversation too. Certainly feel like I could keep you on here and we could just go back and forth on a few of these things for a while longer, but really feel like we've touched on so much and given people an opportunity to think a little bit differently about how they can approach the problems that they face. So thank you again. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me, Karina. To learn more about Charles Kahn and everything he's doing with his work around this book, The Imperfectionists, Strategic Mindsets for Uncertain Times, you can simply go to theimperfectionists.org. They also have a page on LinkedIn. As always, you can visit our show notes for direct links to everywhere to find them and this book. And when you visit caremorebebetter.com, you'll find so much more including complete transcripts for this episode, expanded show notes, bonus features, including links to everything we discussed today. You'll also find resources that we mentioned during today's episode, like Amazon Turk and those other resources for doing market research. While you're visiting caremorebebetter.com, please sign up for our newsletter. Subscribers receive a welcome gift, which is simply a five-step guide to help you get organized and inspire activism. It also serves as a great project management tool. So you don't necessarily have to have an activistic stripe to go ahead and use it. Now, if you have feedback or you want to suggest a future show topic, send me an email or leave me a voicemail directly from the site too. You can even click that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner and just leave me a voicemail. Thank you, listeners and watchers on YouTube, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, and we can create a more perfect future if we just embrace a little imperfectionism. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.